the world is changing, governing bodies need to change, and, and this might not be palatable to, to Western audiences. It's an inconvenient truth. It, it's happening. It's something that, that governing bodies need to respond to. Welcome to Sport Inc., a podcast where we look beyond the field of play to discuss the business, politics, science and future of sports. Each episode will have an expert guest. I'm Isabel Westbury. And I'm Tim Wigmore. And together, we're your hosts. I'm here now with Tim Wigmore, who writes for The Telegraph, The Economist, ESPN, and is a weekly columnist for The Eye. And I'm uh, here with Isabel Westbury. Um, She's uh, a broadcaster for the BBC and Sky and writes for The Guardian and The Independent. The first time I came across Simon Chadwick was reading an article of yours, Tim, about a business of sports, which cited Simon Chadwick. And I think you cite him pretty much every other week. Yeah, yeah, if not, if not more than that. He's a kind of he's a go-to for all things to do with the business of sport. And what's so great about Simon is he's got a really global perspective. So he's got a huge knowledge of sport in Asia, particularly in, in China, um, and therefore really interesting perspectives on how sport, where sport is now and, and how it's changing. And I think one of the things um, that I find very interesting about Professor Simon Chadwick is his interaction as well on Twitter. He'll, he'll interact with questions. Um, he's not somebody that sort of you feel as though you can't reach and who only speaks in academic tomes. Um, and the interview, which you'll hear in a minute, I actually found hugely optimistic about the way in which sport and the commercialization of sport is going. I think there's a tendency these days to suggest that big money is getting in the way of those old sporting ideals of fair play and participation. But while sport is definitely changing, and that was certainly um, the theme of, of the interview and what he was saying, not necessarily all the time for the worse. Yeah, and I mean, go back to those values of, of fair play and so on. It's like, did we ever really, really have them, you know? Cricket, for example, from its earliest roots, was really set up as a vehicle for, for gamblers. Um, and it, there are ways, I suppose, in which commercialization could help to do, to clean up sport and, and almost make it a little bit more transparent. Um, so with um, you know match fixing and, and doping and so on, obviously commercialization will create more incentives for those. But it's also possible it create a vehicle to, to regulate. If you're being optimistic, as Simon tried to be, that it'll create a vehicle to regulate uh, those areas in, in a proper way. Um, and in, in some respects, uh, where sport is most vulnerable is when you get the onset of commercialization, um, but you have things like, you know, some players still being paid extremely poorly and so on, which means, you know, you, you go to a team and also you, you can pick off a few who are most most vulnerable. So, um, yeah, Simon's was a more more optimistic take. And while, of course, he acknowledged that there are a number of issues at the moment with the role of money and political power play in sport, he also, I think, cited examples of areas um, or sports that were doing well. The, some of the national governing bodies of basketball, the NBA in, in America, for example, and also... Um, the way in which which sport we think about sometimes we think about some of the big um, Middle Eastern companies using uh, the power of sport for sports washing and to to sit, to make their brand or their country more savoury in the eyes of the West. It's also played a huge role in um, trying to tackle the problems of obesity, for example, in Qatar and um, participation in the likes of China, which remember is the most populous country 
in the world. And, and one thing that I really liked was that he hasn't ruled out China winning the World Cup by 2050, but that's something I'm sure you'll hear very shortly. Yeah, so uh, lots of joy on this. Um, a week off for Izzy, who was styling uh, this week, <laughs> so you have to make do with uh, just me doing styling all by myself. Um, but obviously all the good questions are from Izzy anyway, she wanted me to emphasize that. Um, so here we go. Uh, so, uh, here's uh, Simon Chadwick, professor of sports enterprise at the University of Salford, talking about where sport is and where it's going to be in 10 years time. Simon, thanks very much for joining us today here on Sport Inc. It's uh, good to be with you. Right, so to dive straight in, um, what do you think have been the biggest turning points in the commercialisation of sport and leading us to where we've got today? America. I think that America really dominated certainly the second half of the, the 20th century in sport. And it was the, uh, the Americans that were responsible for uh, the development of a, of a rights market in broadcasting, but equally they were responsible for uh, essentially creating the whole notion of, 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 a, of a sponsorship industry and, and obviously linked to that endorsements and, and naming rights. And so uh, a contemporary history of, of, of American sport, I think, is a useful guide to understanding where the Premier League is right now, where Formula One is right now, where tennis is right now. And within that, we can think of all manner of organizations like, for example, IMG and uh, the, the, the role that IMG played in, for instance, uh, representing athletes and, and helping them to, to, to commercialize their, their image, their identities, but also in helping them to create their brands. Uh, I guess following on from that, really the, the uh, acceptance or the, the embrace of the rest of the world uh, of, of this North American model of sport is really significant. And if we look at, for instance, the development of the Premier League, in essence, what the Premier League did was to, to, to follow a model of American sport in, in, in the way that it sought to build revenue streams to um, promote the commercial development and long-term sustainability of the competition. So I, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an American thing and its lineage is deep, its lineage is strong. And we see this playing out now in all manner of sports, I think, across the world. How much of this commercial, this journey of commercialization? How much of it is complete, and how much, how much is it an unfinished story? We've lived through an era where there there has been, over the last century, this schism between communism and capitalism. Uh, if we play through to the late eighties into the nineties, we we know that old communist um, regimes collapsed. And a lot of people at that point began to herald uh, the, the, the victory of capitalism and, and the victory of Western liberalism and, and uh, North European and, and North American ways of, of doing business in sport. And so, as I've mentioned, we, we've, we've all embraced, the world has embraced sponsorships and TV deals and endorsements and naming rights and stadium developments. But we're actually now entering a new era in which uh, we're beginning to see the rise of Asia and, and uh, the interventions of Asian governments. If we look at Qatar as one example, staging 20, the 2022 World Cup. Uh, if we look at China too, uh, staging 2022 Winter Olympics, but also a whole host of, of other events as well. And their way of doing business is, is, is different to, to the Western way of doing business. 
And so whilst I think uh, th this North American and European development of a, of a commercialized global sport industry has been significant, and I think still does have some way to go, and I'm thinking specifically here about, for example, developments in digital and social media and what that will mean for broadcasting. But alongside that, I also think that there is this role that, that Asian nations are now playing and, and predominant within that, the role Asian governments and Asian states are playing. And so what we, we, we're seeing, if we take airline sponsorships as one example, we have uh, Qatar Airways, um, sponsoring Boca Juniors, Roma, and, and several other properties. We have Emirates Airlines sponsoring Real Madrid, AC Milan, and others. But the interesting thing is these, these are not necessarily conventional sponsorships in a, in a commercial Western sense. Uh, these are all state-owned entities, so Qatar Airways and Emirates are, are both state-owned. Yes, it is about getting bums on seats, so both airlines want to sell tickets uh, to passengers. But at the same time, both airlines are being used for, I think, for political and soft power purposes. It's about shaping people's perceptions of these countries. And so, yes, the Western story, uh, the North American model, still has some way to go, still has some distance to, to play out yet. But increasingly, what we're now starting to, to, to see is a, is a further iteration and development of that model through a more Asian-centric and, and through a, a, a more state-led kind of model. In a nutshell, is that is that the biggest difference as you see it between uh, commercialization of sport, you know, Yankee style and commercialization of sport, East Asian style, the involvement of, of states more directly? So I, I think from following the fall of, fall of communism, there was this... Uh, implicit belief that, that a commercial model of sport, a free, mar free market model of sport would, would prevail, would dominate. And it is almost as though what we're now beginning to see is a repoliticization of, of, of sport. But it's, it's not a repoliticization in, in the form of communism. It's the repoliticization in terms of what I think is an Asian, Asian influence that somehow fuses a commercial orientation, but also a, a strong state intervention. And so quite what this will look like in, in say, 10 years' time, I think remains open to question. But I, I, I think the Yankees, Razzmatazz, um, all singing, all dancing, US-style type of sport that we saw in the second half of the 20th century, that that will become... Um, that, will, that will change, that will become different and I think when it plays out in Beijing when it plays out in Doha, when it plays out in Moscow and elsewhere it will be similar but it will be different. Do you think sports governing bodies and sports leagues, do you think they realise what, what they, they're getting in for here? I find it really interesting that uh, FIFA president Gianni Infantino appeared at uh, the G20 summit um, before Christmas uh, speaking about the power of sport um, to the Indians, the Russians, the Chinese, the British, the Americans, the Germans. Um, I think Infantino is someone who inevitably comes in for a lot of criticism. I, I think it's part of the territory being FIFA president. But what I found particularly significant about Infantino is, 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 and his appearance is, is that he does appear to appreciate that the world is pivoting eastwards. And with that eastward pivot, the, the, the old ways of, of, of governing sport, and I'm thinking not just about 
20th century commercial development of sport. I'm thinking back to the 19th century too, because for me, the 19th century was very much a, a, a European century. It was where yep. Europeans dominated and prevailed and the codes and the structures and the systems that we still now have in many sports really emerged out of that European era and, and continued into the early part of the 20th century. But Infantino now knows that it, it's not just about Europe, it's not just about North America, it is also about, for instance, Asia. And so his appearance, I think, at, at the G20 was, was, was telling, but also symbolic of, of, of a very different era that's beginning to emerge. I guess some cynics would say, well, hey, you know, he, he, he needs Asian countries, he needs Asian governments because FIFA needs money. And they would point to, for instance, the four Chinese sponsors that, that the FIFA World Cup now has. And I guess there is an element of that, but I think there is something much more to it than that. I think there is something fundamentally about uh, the economic and political environment of the world, which is, is obviously linked very closely to globalization. And the fact is that, that there are people out there in sport, there are governors out there in sport, Infantino being one of them, who realise that, that the world is changing and that governing bodies need to change. And, and this might not be palatable to, to Western audiences, but for me, it's, 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 it's an inconvenient truth. It, it's happening. It's something that, that governing bodies need to respond to. So if we're in the, the kind of Asian century, if you like, for sports, what, what are the main challenges, risks and opportunities that this will present, uh, this is presenting already? So I think that Asian nations are... Um, uh, their, their approach to sport is very much state-led rather than being laissez-faire or free market-led. So inevitably this, this implies uh, a political agenda. And that political agenda sometimes is linked to, um, I think, very important causes or very important issues. So, for instance, around health and active lifestyle, around social cohesion, if you look at Qatar, again, is an example, uh, a hugely disparate population, uh, approximately only 10% of which is Qatari. There, the remainder are from different immigrant groupings. So there are big issues of, of social cohesion in Qatar. Sport is being used to address those issues of social cohesion. Also in Qatar, has the highest rate of teenage diabetes in the world. And so sport is a, is a, is a great way for... Qatari government to, to attempt to, to address some of those those health issues that the country faces. But I think inevitably what we also begin to see are the, are the downsides of the politicking. And, and we have the case right now of, of uh, the, the, the Bahraini footballer who's been detained in, in Thailand. And the what, what the repoliticization of sport appears to be doing is, is to put sport front and centre stage of diplomacy of international relations and of geopolitics and so you will get cases we will see instances of for instance footballers who have escaped one country being detained in a third country because the first country wants them to be returned to the the the, the nation and, and stand trial and so these kind of political issues issues of what we might think are um unacceptable governance standards, these, these are going to confront Europe and, and North America more and more. What we're also beginning to see is, is cases like uh, Abu Dhabi at Manchester City, uh, Qatar and Paris Saint-Germain, 
because essentially what they're doing is is they're pushing the boundaries of 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 this rules-based governance system that we've had in Europe in this particular case around financial fair play because as we now know they've they've flouted these two uh, owners have flouted those rules and that and yet they've they've cut deals with UEFA to help them get through the financial fair financial fair play tests that they face and this is very characteristic of the changing global order right now which is seeing really the world move from a rules-based system that has emerged out of Europe and North America to a more deals-based system where you, know, you don't have rules, you just strike deals on a, on, a, on, a, on a case-by-case basis. And I think the two two examples of uh, Paris Saint-Germain, Qatar, Manchester City, Abu Dhabi is, is a real example of this shift from a rules-based international order towards a, a, a more deals-based international order. But do you think sports governing bodies, sports clubs, you know, do, they, do they need some proper checks and balances to, to, what, to what's happening? Because, yeah, you talked about Man City and PSG as examples of, you know, states clearly using, using those teams almost as a, a vehicle of, of soft power, essentially. Um, is there a better way for that, for that to be addressed and that to be stopped? Well, I think we're, we're living in, 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 a, in a period of history where... Certainly in sport, we essentially have a clash of three cultures. So we have, we have the, the, the social democrats of Europe, whereby there is some state intervention in sport, uh, and, and sport can be guided by the state when it serves a particular purpose. But at the same time, essentially the market for broadcasting rights, the, the, the market for sponsorships and so forth, is, is, is essentially a free market. It, it, it's... Um, uninhibited by state intervention. You look at the United States and, and um, what, what essentially we have is a free market for sport. And, and, and although within individual sports there is intervention from governing authorities, um, so the NBA, the NFL and so forth, in, in, certainly in, in, in government terms, there's very little state intervention in sport in the United States. And in fact, the US doesn't have a sports ministry. And, and the reason for that is is that essentially it's the private sector that is expected to, to make those important sports decisions that are made about leagues and competitions and, and governance and so forth. So you've got those two systems, and now we're beginning to see a third system really developing in, in, in strength and, and, and beginning to influence what happens not just domestically within countries but across the world, and, and this is the, the Asian way of governing. And the Asian way of governing does very, very strongly emphasize state intervention. And, and so states will use sport as a means through which to achieve other goals, which is, is very sharply distinctive from the United States model, but is even different to that European socially democratic model. So where we are right now is, is, is I think we have an unclear picture about the way the, the, the sports governance should be and the way, the way sports governance will be in, in 10, 15, 20 years' time. My view always on this is, is that we need to reach a consensus, and I've always advocated, for example, there needs to almost be like a, a climate change summit for sport, because I think we're at, we're at the stage where there are so many competing interests, so there are huge companies, uh, there are really powerful governments, there are increasingly dominant leagues and, and competitions that are influencing sport. And yet at the same time across the world, we also have 
you know, for example, football fans in Europe saying, well, you know, we still want our football to be the same as it always was. Um, and they ask that fans are important stakeholders, and, and yet they're confronted with this reality of Asian governments and, and US mega corporations uh, shaping the sport that they have this stake in. And so, as I say, I, I think consensually we need a we need a way forward we, we need to discuss this openly and we need to decide as a, as a global sporting community how we want our sport to look in 10 20 years time but we don't see much consensus do we but we don't see <laughs> but we don't see much consensus and and, and I, I i think what we're now beginning to see in in in, in not just sport globally, but even locally. You see it in Manchester. You, you you see it with, you know, you have City, which is owned by an Asian government, and you have United, which is owned by um, uh, uh, a North American sports entrepreneur. For that matter, in Salford, you have Salford City, which is owned by you know, a, a, an Asian businessman and six former players who happen to be incredibly wealthy people. And, and so there, there are really interesting issues about the commercialization the industrialization of sport the politicization of sport but set against the backdrop drop of what ultimately still is is physically local you know they, these three teams united city and salford city are, are physically located in manchester and so therefore have a, an engagement with the local community and i just don't think that the football specifically but sport more generally is really talking about these issues in a, in a constructive or meaningful way. And so what we're getting is this this juxtaposition of and conflict between different ways of seeing sport and different ways of governing it. If sports get this moment wrong, they don't find a way to kind of manage these tensions constructively, what could happen to them? You know, what are the risks? We, we do see a, um, almost like an ideological standoff between old ways of, of governing sport and new ways of governing sport and those old ways will either be European or North American um, and again both both have advantages, both have disadvantages but that is obviously set potentially set against uh, increasingly, uh, increasingly powerful and dominant Asian nations in which um, self-political self interest is very strong, it's very high, and I'm thinking particularly about China as I, I say this, but I think it's equally evident in countries like Russia, in, in countries like um, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia we've not mentioned so far. And so my, my, my considered opinion is, is, is that whilst the West still, still has some semblance of, of power and influence, it should really be taking the lead in terms of you know, next generation governance. What does it look like? Because unless it unless it takes up that challenge, I think the 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 the, the global shifts, the economic shifts, the political shifts that we're now encountering as a, as a as a as a world will mean that the agenda will be set by governments like the Chinese government. And and you know, in the West, we need to think about that, and we need to rise to that challenge sooner rather than later. But in your view, are some sports handling this moment in a better way than others? I don't think I don't think any sports are, because at the moment, for me, the governance of most sports is dominated by uh, Europeans and North Americans, and what those European and North Americans are doing is is they're responding to the rise of Asia in economic terms. 
in other words, they they see they see Asia as a a potential source of, of, of sustainable revenue streams through sponsorships or overseas fans or holding competitions there. What I think a lot of Western sports are failing to do is is to rise to the political opportunities and challenges that are ahead. Because the more that you see economic power to, to nations like China, by implication what you're also doing is you're ceding political power to, to, to the likes of China. And so I think we will see in the future, for instance, senior members of FIFA coming from China. I, 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 I predict that at some stage before, before 2050, we will have a Chinese president of FIFA. Now, what Europe and what North America have got to ask themselves is, is are they prepared for that? And are they prepared for the ramifications of that? Well, what, are, what do you think will the, the ramifications will be of that? Well, the ramifications will be is, is that um, the separation between state and sport simply isn't there in countries like China. There, there isn't this um, autonomy. If you take Britain as an example, obviously we do, we do our sports ministry and that sports ministry advises and guides and lobbies, but ultimately uh, a British FIFA president is not the consequence of British government power or British government lobbying. The, the British government would, would always take a, a more considered and, and laissez-faire approach to, to those kinds of issues. But certainly in China, you don't have this separation between between state and sport. And so a FIFA president from China would not just be a, a FIFA uh, a, a FIFA representative that would also be a representative of, of Chinese government, of, of Chinese ideology, of Chinese ideals. Uh, and so the rest of the world needs to be mindful of that, that control will be exercised on a political basis rather than any other basis. Just changing tack slightly, Edward Wood, the executive vice chairman of uh, Manchester U- United uh, last year, he famously said that the club did not need to win to make money anymore. Uh, was he just saying that to, to, uh, to placate his disgruntled investors, or do you think he's actually right? All of the, uh, the established uh, sport research on this, sport marketing research, demonstrates that one of the most important factors in um, building revenue streams and being commercially successful is success on the pitch. So for all, all consumers, if we can call fans consumers, whether they're actual or prospective, um, for all consumers, all consumers need a, need a point of engagement with a product. So in other words, they need a reason to, to buy. And um, image and reputation, status and success is, is something that we, we do when we consume any product. So, you know, we buy a car, we buy a TV, we buy a telephone because we think they've got a good record, they're reliable, they're successful, they confer a particular image on us. So, for Edward Wood to say that, I think, is um, inaccurate and uh, is a little, a little naive because in all aspects of our life, when we consume things, we, we consume things... For, for, for reasons of success very often. And as I say, certainly in, in, in sport research, success on the field is a very important part of fan consumption motives. What's really interesting is is there is another concept um, that people would talk about, is, which is brand equity. And 
if a brand is successful, if a brand performs in the way that people want it to perform, if people are satisfied with that brand, if there are reasons to engage with that brand, then over time equity builds up. And essentially, brand equity is 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 that you know some brands have advantages, and these advantages very often are, are, are intangible. They have advantages that other brands don't. And, and I think in the case of Manchester United, there is considerable brand equity. So in other words, there are things that United does for us, do, does for, for fans, that other brands don't. So you know, for, for older fans, they'll remember back to the 60s and the European um, the, the European Cup. You know, Some people will remember back even further to, to, to Munich in the late 50s. You will also have people who remember the great sides of the 19, uh, 1990s and 1999 in the Champions League final and the treble winning uh, team. So all of this builds up equity. It builds up um, history. It builds up heritage. It builds up goodwill. And so I think for the time being, um, United can trade on this brand equity. So even though the club isn't being successful in the field, it can trade on this brand equity. But the problem is, is, is ultimately success on the field is significant, as the research shows. But equally, brand equity does erode. It doesn't last forever. And so my, my view would be is, is that the team in charge at, uh, at United, you know, the commercial team, the, the owners, they've got five years. And, and the myth and the legend of United will continue. Uh, there will be people out there in the world who will continue to identify with United. But what you've got emerging over the next five to ten years is, is, is new generations of consumers. So people who became aware of football, people who became aware of teams, people who became economically independent since 2013 when Ferguson left. So you're going you're gonna to have 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds now who really have not grown up knowing United as being successful. And it's really what happens amongst not only them, but then even younger members of society following on. You know, they're they're going to be looking at City and seeing success. They're going to be looking at Liverpool and seeing success. They're going to be looking at Paris Saint-Germain and Juventus seeing success. And so United does have an issue. And as I say, I think they've got five years to do something about this before the new generations of fans begin to exercise their economic and market power by following other teams, by following other sports, by maybe not even following sports at all. Do you see, with some people identify, an increasing tension between uh, commercial and sporting aims? So between the need to sign the player who's best for your brand value and between the need to sign the player who's, who will score the most goals for you or whatever? I do. And, and particularly, let, let's say you are, for example, a, a European club. Um, all of the research suggests that in, in places like China... Uh, it, it, is, it is players that are becoming the point of engagement rather than the team. And whereas for middle-class, middle-aged white men like me who were born and brought up in a town and it really didn't matter who came to play for you in the sense that it was all about the team. So you identified firstly with the team and only secondly with the players. But in the living rooms of Shanghai and Beijing, what increasingly seems to be happening amongst new generation or young generations of Chinese consumer is it's the player first and then the team second. 
So if Ronaldo's playing for United, then they'll support United. If Ronaldo moves to Real Madrid, then they'll support Real Madrid. If he moves to Juventus, they'll support Juventus. And so I think we have seen a, a change in, in the nature of fandom. And that change in the nature of, of, of fandom means that when clubs sign players, particularly at that top end, particularly the likes of United and Real and, and Barcelona and AC and Juve and Bayern Munich, they do need to be mindful of uh, where where their fans are and how their fans engage. And I mean, again, it's an inconvenient truth that you know it's it's great to it's great to have fantastic teams like Juventus and 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 to have great players, the best in the world, you know, and and maybe to have those players without needing to think about where they come from. But the reality is, is, is those players are incredibly expensive assets who earn huge amounts of money represented by agents who want to take a significant cut of deals and unfortunately for these clubs they've got to they've, they've got to therefore think more commercially more strategically about how they're going to make money from players and and sadly for people like me who are used to perhaps the old way as i say the in- inconvenient truth for them is is they do need to think well you know if we sign ronaldo we can sell we can sell you know 300 million dollars worth of shirts worldwide so let's sign him because he'll pay for himself and, and that's just the reality of, I think, the, the industry that we have, that we, that we face today. I mean, does all the commercialisation of sport, does this risk putting fans off and thereby, you know, sports need to be careful, not to overreach? My, my view already is, is that uh, sport has changed dramatically and it is polarising and fragmenting. And the comparison I always make is, is with with food retailing um, <laughs> when I was a kid you wanted uh, you wanted a, a loaf of bread you walked down you walked down to the corner of your street and you bought it at the corner shop or if you wanted to buy a cup of coffee you'd go down to the local cafe and the owner would know your name and they knew exactly how you wanted your coffee made with you know, how many sugars or whatever and now if you uh, if you want to buy a, a loaf of bread, you've got to get in your car and drive out of town to an out of town store. You want a coffee, you go to Starbucks, you go to Costa. They don't know your name, they don't know who you are. And and so, for me, this is what certainly football, but I think increasingly sport globally is looking like. Is is if you want Starbucks, then you've got Real Madrid. You know, if you if you want Costa, then you've got Manchester United. Um, but nevertheless, you know. Wigan Athletic still exists and Scunthorpe United still exists and Carlisle United still exists. So, you know, if you do want that coffee from your local store or you, you want the loaf of bread from your corner shop, you still can go and see the, these clubs. So I think we, we are seeing a, 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 a concentrating market with bigger clubs, bigger organisations dominating, but we are also seeing a polarising and segmenting market which is, you know, there there are people who don't they, they don't want to drink their coffee in Starbucks. They want to go to they want to go to a local cafe, and so we still do see these people supporting their local teams. Um, but I do think at the same time we're also seeing big challenges from console gaming. We're seeing big challenges from cinema. We're seeing big challenges from sports in which consumers co-create so i'm thinking about things like skateboarding and bmxing and parkour and 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 other such things and so what we now have is 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 all of those old certainties if you like that we had 30 or 40 years ago are now beginning to to dissolve and to disappear and we're getting a much more diverse 
much more fragmented, much more segmented in marketing terms industry, where sports are still going to continue to exist, but they'll change, they'll develop, they'll be different, there'll be new sports. But at the same time, I think there are also, for example, different forms of entertainment that will challenge some of the things that that some of us know about sport in the past. So really a kind of a winner-takes-all world where the most popular sports, potentially like football, become even more popular compared to their competition and the most popular clubs and teams, their market share also increases even more? My gut reaction is to say, yes, that's exactly what is happening. Uh, We're in a winner-takes-all world. So football dominates. Uh, Within football, we know that Europe dominates. Within European football, we know the Champions League dominates. Within the Champions League, we know Real Madrid and uh, uh, and Bayern Munich and Barcelona and these others they dominate. Um, and so yes, that that is that is my gut reaction. That's my instinct that we we live in a world characterised by industrial concentration. It happen, happens with coffee shops. You know, Starbucks and Costa dominate. It happens with. Um, you know, it happens with with things like banks and financial services. You, know, you get the likes of HSBC dominate. It happens in the car industry. You get the likes of General Motors dominates, and we're seeing the same thing happening not just in football but but in other sports too. So if you look at Formula One, for example, you got Ferrari and Mercedes dominate. So this world of, of, of concentration and domination is, is, is characteristic of this era. All I would say is, is if you go back to when I was a kid, which is uh, three or four centuries ago, this, uh, this domination and concentration wasn't taking place. And, and there was a, a greater sense, for instance, in football that anybody could win the championship, anybody could win the league. So clearly over the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a fairly dramatic and fundamental shift from this sense of egalitarianism and expectation, if you like, to an era now where we have concentration and domination. What I'm trying to say is what it will be like in 20 or 25 or 30 years' time, time who knows? Maybe, maybe the situation will evolve and change and be different, but certainly based on what I'm feeling right now, it's about domination and concentration. Is there a governing body of a sport which is being run best or at least least badly? Uh, well, I guess in t- I guess in terms of in terms of competitive balance uh, and and maintaining the fundamental principles of sport, uncertainty of outcome, competitive balance, um, kind of equity and fairness, you've got to you've got to look at North American sports. You've got to look at the NFL or the NHL, the uh, uh, the NBA, because what notwithstanding the the millions and billions of dollars involved in North American sport. Um, I think sports administrators still do realise that, that the power of sports, the, the product that they're selling, is uncertainty. And uncertainty is a hugely compelling product because it creates emotions, it brings stress and anxiety, but it also brings ecstasy and joy. And, and so there's something really interesting to, to, to work with there in, in commercial terms. Now, you know, taking this further back, this is what European football fans always used to love and still do love it's great when there's a contest when you never know who's going to win so I think in those terms um, you have to say North American sport with with their eye on the need to preserve 
you know, those very kind of fundamental and basic characteristics of sport is 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 really significant. At the same time, where we are, we are also now beginning to see, for instance, Formula E. I find Formula E a very very interesting sport because what we're now beginning to see is a very different form, I think, of, of governance beginning to emerge, and and this is emerging from this social and digital age when. Uh, new media are, are, are challenging conventional notions of, of, of democracy and of, of openness and of governance. And just to give one example, the, 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 uh, the facility where you can, you can vote via Facebook during a race for your, uh, your favourite driver, uh, and that driver in Formula E gets a power boost during the race as a consequence of, of, of people liking on Facebook. You know, they, this really fundamentally challenges things that we've we we've always known about sport I mean, many many of us have, have kind of uh, you know, we, we've, we've often fantasized about being the coach of a team and, and who we'd sign and who we wouldn't sign and who we play in which position and what the likes of formula e are now doing is, is putting people in positions where they have some degree of power over these decisions and so in democratically and, and, and in government governance terms this is this is really giving people what they've always wanted but at the same time obviously this this challenges what we've always known but i think to look at the likes of formula e really interesting and again looking at um looking at some of the sports that i mentioned earlier like bmxing and skateboarding and parkour and base jumping and where there is a much more collective sense of the need to preserve the integrity of a sport and to maintain a connection with if you like the, the the participants and the and, and and the spectators of those sports, and I, and I know that there is a resistance, for instance, amongst those who uh, who who pursue street sports to become to become codified, to become structured, to have formal governance mechanisms in place. And so I think one of the one for me one of the really interesting things, one of the exciting things about living now, about being alive in this era, is is you have got this real kind of mixture and juxtaposition of lot, lots of different ways of, of um, organising and governing sports and it will be interesting to see what emerges over the next two or three decades in, in, in terms of how this dictates how what sport looks like in the future Right, a couple of very final ones to finish off one of your, your, uh, expertise, your subjects of most expertise, can China really win the Men's Football World Cup by 2050 as President Xi hopes? So if you'd asked me last week, I'd have said no. If you asked me this week, maybe, who knows? Um, I've, I've been paying close attention to Qatar for the last 15 years. So the Aspire Academy was opened up in 2004. And, and who could ever have imagined that 15 years later, the Aspire Academy would be one of the main drivers of the country's victory in, in the Asian Cup? And I was reading, uh, I've just re been reading this morning that... Um, Qatar's ranking will go from something like 96th up to 55th and, and, and you've now got to ask the question well you know, could Qatar actually get out of the group phase of 2022 could they get to the quarterfinals or what could they do in 2022 <laughs> and, and, and you know, this, this, this really for me is kind of mind blowing now Qatar is a country of just over 2.5 million people and, and they're making huge strides China is a country of 1.6 billion people and has already demonstrated that, for example, in Olympic sports, it can be a leading competitor. And so on that basis, um, 
again, my 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 gut is telling me no way, no way can China do this, no way can China become a, um, the World Cup winners by 2015. But at the same time, I'm thinking, well, if Qatar can can make strides and, and progress, why can't China? And and I think China is uh, a hugely centrist centrist country in the sense that. The state governs and drives everything, and when the state wants something, typically it gets it. Um, it also has the money to be able to do this. It has the human resources to be able to do this. I guess there are issues around, does it have the expertise to train and develop uh, players? There's also something, too, about political interference. Um, there's also something, too, about hiring in talent and the culture of, of football within the country. So I'm going to reserve judgment and say, I, I don't know. I really don't know. Cru- crucially, I think if you look at what China, what China says in its in its um, policy on football, it actually talks about itself as becoming a leading FIFA nation by 2050, and I think that is suitably vague. It could mean China is in the top 20, top 20 of FIFA rankings for men. China is in the top 20 of, of, of FIFA rankings for women. It could mean China has a FIFA president. It could mean that a majority of the sponsors of, of, of the World Cup are Chinese corporations. So reserve judgment on what 2050 means for China. Um, will they win the World Cup? I don't think so, but hey, who knows? And finally, let's have a few, let's have some pr- predictions for sport in 2030. How will it be different to sport in 2019? No, 2030 in 11 years' time. Yeah, how will it be different to sport today? Lots of Asia, um, lots of digital and social, uh, fundamentally challenging everything that we know that has gone before. Um, people possibly may not even be physically going anymore to sport if they are physically going to places to um, to engage with sports they're likely likely to want to be co-creators of that sport rather than just people who stand there or sit there passively um, if we do go to physical places to watch sport it won't be just to watch sport either it will be to eat food it will be to go to a, a 3D cinema with 6K screen or 7K screen or whatever we're at by that stage. And so I, I think sport sport in 2030 will be everything that sport is now, but times 10 or times 50 or times 100. Uh, Simon Chadwick, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for asking me the questions. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Sport Inc. Join us again next time where we'll be looking at sport from an entirely different angle altogether. Until then, goodbye.